0: Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles, That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again today, and thank you for joining us again as we continue our study on the book of Romans. Uh, The last two weeks we spent, I think, introducing the book of Romans, and this to me is going to be, I think, an exciting And very important subject as we kind of look at this again. And once again, let me say that it's going to be impossible for me to cover all of it in one setting. It'll take me several weeks, but I want to just tell you that uh, this was a letter that Paul wrote. It was meant to be read in one sitting, not a chapter this week, and then a month from now another chapter, because you're going to miss the ongoing unfolding context of what Paul was trying to communicate as he begins to lay out the gospel. And the powerful truth is, is that the first part of this uh, book of Romans, of course, is the diagnosis. The first couple of chapters, as I said in the introduction, is the diagnosing, the diagnosis of of the entire human uh, condition, both Jews and Gentiles, insiders, and outsiders as the Message Bible calls them. Uh, the middle part is, of course, uh, not only there's not the diagnosis, it is the, uh, it is the solution for the problem. It is uh, the deliverance from the problem. And of course the latter part is how it plays out in the life of the believer and the glorification. We start out in the first chapter talking about how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but by by the end of the book we see uh, the glorification come as the saints begin to walk in, the reality of what God has called them to walk in. And uh, as I introduce this again, and as we share the gospel over the next several weeks, I would encourage you to realize that if you miss any of these, you can go back to our YouTube channel and watch them on demand at your leisure. And you can also be able to listen to the audio portions uh, on our uh, uh, podcast. And there is an RSS feed for the Android device as well. And the easiest way to go there and get that is to simply go to my website that you see on the screen in the upper right-hand corner, there is a link that will take you directly to those channels, and we will set these up in playlists. I encourage you, we just add a church that asked us if they could use uh, some of this material and some of the other stuff that we have shared over the years in their Wednesday night Bible studies or in their home groups. I said, absolutely. Take the 30-minute segment, pull it down, watch it, discuss it among yourselves, and... uh, you know, I'm not trying to teach you uh, what to think. I'm just simply trying to teach you how to think and try to put you on the right track. And, you know, you may find things that I, 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 I can't find in this book or that I don't find because I think God gives revelation that continues to unfold. So you're more than welcome to do that. We're going to begin to look at Romans 1. And, uh, and let me just say Romans 1, th- that the subject of the Gospel is Jesus when we put our focus on Him, I think the problem has been we've preached everything but Jesus. Now the object of the gospel is humanity. But it is the refreshing water of good news, especially to people who have crashed and burned and come to the end of themselves. It is the announcement that it is finished. The gospel is about Jesus. And again, you know, a number of years ago the Lord said to me, Uh, you have to decide whether you're going to preach Adam or you're going to preach Christ. And if you're going to preach Adam, you're going to have to take an old covenant and use it to modify the behavior of an old man. But if you're going to preach to the new creation and develop and mature him, then you're going to have to preach from the new covenant to develop and to mature and to build faith in the new creation man. And so uh, we're going to see as we go through this book of Romans that is both the objective side of the gospel and the subjective side. I think where our problems come in most of our arguments in uh, debates that we have is when somebody overemphasizes either the objective side or they overemphasize the subjective side, and it's not either or, but it's both of them held in a careful tension. The biblical term for it is it's the way of grace and the walk of faith. So it's not either or but it is all of the above. And so when you start to realize that, that the subject matter is Jesus, we're going to preach Christ. No wonder Paul would say, and I profess to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Because when you preach the crucified Christ and His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and you start to show the redemption, uh, you start to preach the good news. The gospel of God, which is the good news that Paul introduces here in the first chapter, is that the gospel of God, which is the good news, is is that the gospel is squarely located in a person. And that that person is not you. That person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the royal seed of David. And that's one of the first things that Paul begins to establish in the first chapter of the book of Romans, is that this is God's fulfillment of the Davidic promise that out of your loins will come a seed that was set on the throne of David forever, and the of the increase of his government in peace, there will be no end. And the kingdom of God that was already birthed in the very beginning of the first century, when the prophets sent, not the prophets, but John the Baptist, Jesus himself, preached and said, The kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. It's within your grasp. And He began to declare that as the King of the kingdom walked down over the bank of the Jordan River. And then Jesus began to declare to them that it is expedient for you that I go away. If I I don't go away, the Comforter won't come. But as He began to describe the kingdom, He describes the kingdom as righteousness, as peace, and as joy located in the Holy Ghost. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost fell, and the government of heaven began to invade the earth as people begin to receive the indwelling Holy Spirit, and He began to govern inside of them. I would like to say it like this, we became the governor's mansion when He moved inside of us. And so the powerful good news of the gospel is that this is squarely rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This book is not a book of self-help or focused on you having a, your best life now, or something of redoubling your own religious efforts. It is about what was accomplished in the resurrection of Christ on your behalf as a free gift. It is not about who I am primarily, or who I am becoming primarily. That is not the gospel. That is about, this is about what Jesus accomplished outside of you without any help from you. And then what faith does is apply what He did without any help from you. Let me just say it like this, the objective side of the gospel, or the way of grace, is what God did in Christ without any help from you. Where He reconciled us, He redeemed us, He bought us with His blood, He healed us, He delivered us, all of that He's not going to do he already did it on Calvary's cross. That's the objective side of the Calvin. That's the object, I'm sorry, that's the objective side of the work of the cross. Through His death, His burial, and His resurrection, He secured that for every man. The, uh, the subjective side is what I access by faith through believing what He already did. But it's not what I do first, it's what He did that causes the response of faith. And some f- folks try to tell us that well you don't need to believe because that's a work. I'm not surely I'm not sure that you can really call it a work because I think if you truly ever really hear the gospel, you can't help but believe it. And uh, when you hear the good news, and it's almost too good to be true uh, news, and it, it but it is. Tr- uh, and once you hear the gospel, then uh, you start to believe because you can't hardly help but to believe it. Uh, The gospel is not about what would Jesus do. The gospel is about what Jesus has already finished. It's not what Jesus is, uh, not what what would Jesus do. It's about what Jesus already did. It is not about your improvement. It's about Jesus's impartation. It's not about uh, your transformation primarily. It's about Jesus's substitution. It's not about your progress. It's about Jesus's perfection. It is squarely located on Him, His performance, His work on behalf of sinners. While it is not about you, it is about what it, it is, it's, it's about you, is about what it is for you and what He did for you to bring about what you are becoming through what He's done for you and in you as He does the work not only for you, but as He does the work in and through you. For it is God who worketh in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God even begins to work in us to make us have a desire uh, to do what He wants us to do. I've said many times, matter of fact, this weekend I was preaching in Miami, and I said, listen, I'm not interested in just quit sinning. I'm going to lose the desire for it. And so God works in us, be both even in our will, to make us willing in the day of His power. With that being said, let us begin to read a few verses of the gospel here in Romans 1. We've already introduced it, but Romans 1, chapters number 1, verse number 1 through 7 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are called uh, of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul is declaring this, first of all, he's establishing Jesus as being the royal seed of David, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus defeated every enemy. He is seated at the right hand of power, hallelujah, and he is uh, right now ruling and reigning. You know, I think it's interesting even, uh, you know, when I think about him being the royal seed of David. You know, it's interesting as we look at some of these scriptures that you can see how that many times there are quotes from the Old Testament. You must, you must remember that these apostles didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to preach from. They preached Jesus from the law and the prophets, and from the prophetic implications of what they had heard and read and been taught in as Hebrew children. Uh, probably Paul, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, had learned a whole lot of stuff about the Scripture. But one of the things about him being the seed of David and the king, and the one who would sit there, is that when he stood before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas said, tell me plainly, are you uh, the son of God or no? Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, and he said, From henceforth you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of power. And uh, Caiaphas knew he was quoting Daniel chapter 7 when he was talking about his ascension to the throne, his coming in the clouds that he mentioned to Caiaphas when he said, To Caiaphas, and henceforth you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power was Him after His resurrection ascending to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7 and receiving His coronation as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God saying to him, sit at my right hand. And thrones were set, and dominion was given to Him that all nations and kingdoms should serve Him. And that was the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile. And as we get down into uh, this chapter, we will see how that this is written not just to the nation of Israel, but God, because I shared with you uh, prior to this in the book of Acts chapter 15 at the big Jerusalem council, they began to discover that God has not just included Israel or the Jewish people, but He has included all nations that uh, the promise that God made to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed was being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ as it becomes all-inclusive to both Jew and Gentile, bond and free. It was the mystery that was hid throughout ages that it would be Christ in and among all of you, including the Gentiles, which was the hope of glory. Now as he uh, begins to come down through this, his desire was to impart, Paul was saying to them, Uh, As you go on down in here, let me read just a few more verses of this. That he says, First, I thank my God, through Jesus Christ, for you all, that that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both me and you. So Paul was saying his desire was to come to them, to impart to them some spiritual gift, so that you could be established. Perhaps he is talking about the same thing he talked about in the book of Hebrews when he told them why he wrote the book of Hebrews is so that their hearts could be established in grace. Because let me tell you something, grace and peace, as he begins, these salutations are not just random ideas. He's telling you that grace and peace are multiplied to you through the knowledge of God, or through the gospel of His Son, that what happens is, is that He, as He begins to impart to us some spiritual gift, that He could establish our hearts in grace. And as He establishes our hearts in grace, it brings to us a gospel of peace. It brings peace, that grace and peace are multiplied to us, Because what we realize that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the war is over. And you can go back, you know, just right before I started this series on the book of Romans, I had uh, Pastor Ben Daly on my program who talked about his latest book, and he talked about how there was a, uh, a, a soldier, a Japanese soldier that was in the islands, and he did not know that the war was over. And he spent his m- most of his life in the jungles hiding out and defending a post that long ago was over, and the war was over. And I think so many Christians are like that, that That God has reckoned, He's made peace through the blood of His cross and reconciled us uh, to Himself and made peace through the blood of His cross. And really, God is really trying to change not so much, uh, you know, what He thinks about us. God has always, God so loved the world. But through the gospel, He's trying to change what we think about Him. And I believe that we are in a season where we are learning to re- present Him to the world, or represent Him, or to represent Him to the world in a way that brings grace and peace that is multiplied to them. Uh, So the grace and peace, this, uh, uh, you know, the above verse that this grace and peace is coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a grace coming from Paul. He does not, uh, he, he does that to encourage the mutual faith. Remember, the law is not of faith. When you fall back to something other than the gospel, someone needs to encourage you to believe the gospel. And I think as you begin once again to note that Paul is trying to establish our hearts in grace and peace, and as we begin to represent him, that maybe one of the gifts that Paul is trying to impart to them is an understanding that righteousness in the new covenant. Is not on the basis of your performance or on the basis of keeping every jot or tittle of the law. Righteousness is based on a gift. And I always say when I'm preaching this, touch somebody and tell them what part of gift don't you understand? It's not, nothing you earn under the old covenant. Uh, righteousness ha- could only be achieved by keeping every jot and every tittle of the law. And as you get into the book of Romans and you go on through this letter and read it, and you see that in chapter three, he concludes that the end of the law is that there's none righteous. No, not even one. Nobody made it in by the works of the law. It still had to be by the hearing of faith. And as I was thinking even about representing him, in a way that the world could see Him through a new covenant lens, as Jesus really came to show us what the Father looked like as He begins to introduce this new covenant and introduce God as our Father. But when I said that, I was thinking about a scripture in the Old Testament that says that His visage was marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men, so that when you see Him, there's no beauty that you would desire Him. And when I think about that text, I know that it's talking about what happened in his passion at the cross as he was mercifully beaten. His back looked like a plowed field. His armpits probably looked like bowls of blackberry jello. His pieces of rubbery mucus hung from his face while godless uh, people spit on the face of the Messiah and blood dripped from the divine brow. And he's half naked hanging in front of the world. And when he would pass by, there's no beauty that you would desire him. I know it has all to do with that. And you can certainly see that. But that, I believe it's that same text that said he was wounded in the house of his friends. And I sometimes wonder if the way we present God to the world, or, or if you will, Jesus to the world, that we don't present Him in such a way that it's almost repulsive and ugly. We, we, we've, we've presented God as this austere old man on a Victorian chair who can't wait for you to foul up so he can beat you upside the head with a club and punish you. But the reality of it is you've got to see God like a good Father who will correct you, but that His correction is with the intent of bringing about correction in your life unto producing the the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And so, you know, I think we may be so misrepresented God that when the world sees Him, there's no beauty that you would desire Him. But I love how the writer of the Song of Solomon grabs a hold of that, and he says, uh, when 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 the when the woman who is the Shulamite was in pursuit of her beloved, she had been, you know, even uh, uh, as as she talks about in in uh, chapter five, she said, "The watchmen that went about the city, they wounded me, they smote me, they took away my veil." The watchmen to me speak about ministry with an old covenant paradigm. They smote her, they wounded her, they took away her veil. And, and when, in, in other words, old covenant ministries, when they find you, always beat us up. We leave there mutilated and feeling wounded and left behind. But this is what I love about what the woman in the Song of Solomon, she said, they found me and they wounded me, they took away my veil. But then this is what she says, tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where you feed the flock and where you make your, 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 your flock to rest at noonday. And what's so moving to me about that, what she's virtually saying is, yes, they wounded me, they beat me. But she said, but if you've ever encountered my beloved, because in the chapter before that he had kissed her with the kisses of his mouth, and they tried to tell her, what is it about your beloved that's better than any of these other beloveds? And I'll describe that in just a moment. But once she had tasted of how good he really was, she said to them, even after they wounded her and beat her, she said, Have you have you seen my beloved? Tell him tell him, tell him I'm lovesick. And so what I simply says to me is: this is how I felt growing up in many of the abusive situations of religion, is I experienced him. When I was a young man, before I got all beat up by religion, I had experienced the anointing of God and the presence of God and the love of God and the Spirit of God. And once you've experienced that, and you've tasted that, you remember that, and she said, tell me where, have you have you seen my beloved? Have you seen, in other words, she said, you know what? You can't beat me bad enough to make me stop wanting my beloved. And so have you seen my beloved? Tell him I'm lovesick. In other words, she said, you know what? I have been wounded and I have been bruised. And you know what? I look back and I think sometimes we almost need to apologize for how people have been abused under religion by well-meaning preachers who think that's what they're supposed to do except they're preaching from the wrong covenant and they are so marring the visage of Christ that no one is interested in pursuing Him or seeking Him. But when you truly find Him and your beloved, you find out, hallelujah, she said, they said to her, her pursuit for him became so infectious that the daughters of Jerusalem said to the woman in the Song of Solomon, what is it about your beloved that's better than any other beloved? And she began to describe him from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. She said his hair is as black as a raven, his his, his 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 eyes are like doves. His fingers are like gold cylinders that are set with beryl. She describes him from the top of her head to the soles of her feet. And this is what she says that's so powerful. She said, my beloved is altogether lovely. And I thought, man, what a contrast to his visage was so marred more than any other man, more than the f- you know, his visage was more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of men, so that when you see him there's no beauty that you would desire him. But here they are declaring in the Song of Solomon, he's altogether lovely. That's what we want to preach through the gospel in the book of Romans as we begin to declare and unveil him to you in a way where you see his visage, and you see him with an unveiled face, with a passion and a love and with dove's eyes. Hallelujah. His eyes are like the doves, she says. His eyes are like the eyes of a dove. And if you know what doves are like, I looked out my window this morning, and there were, I think, eight sets of doves. Uh, They were all, they both, all have their mate, and they mate for life. It's a powerful thing, but he has eyes, and he only has eyes for his beloved. He's in love with you, and he cares about you, and we are going to represent him in a way that I believe will make him appealing to people where they don't run from him, but they run to him. And you know, sometimes I think he's been so misrepresented that, uh, you know, people who've grown up in church, especially in the early days, want nothing to do with it until they get in their older years and they think, well, all I've, got, I've lived my life now, I could get saved, and maybe I could still make it into heaven by the skin of my teeth. Let me tell you, this abundant life that He wants to give you is far more joyful than that. And it's not about rules, and it's not about self-help, and it's not about what would Jesus do, or it's not about ten steps to a better you. And a lot of the religious books that are on shelves today and Christian bookstores are nothing more than self-help programs and sin management programs that put the weight back on you, but the gospel in this book is directly centered right on Jesus Christ, His person, His work, and what He's done. And uh, man, I'm going to tell you, the more I preach the gospel, I realize it's good news and there is no bad news. Well, we're almost out of time, so let me just encourage you to come back and watch uh, this series as we begin to unfold it. We do need your help, though, to take the gospel around the world. And we don't say a lot about this because we mostly run out of time, but I want to take a moment to just encourage you that if you're being blessed by this ministry and you'd like to give to this ministry help us to continue to do that, just simply go to our website, and there is a place where you can give via credit card or debit card. You can actually set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a monthly partner or give a one-time gift. You can also send a check or a money order to the address that will come up on the screen. Or you can call the number that will come on the screen. Someone will take your call. If they don't leave a message, and we will call you back. If you don't leave a message, many times they don't call you back. God bless you. Join us next week. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am.